right. Uh, so uh, today we are going to be diving in excitedly into uh, uh, section 3.2. As Triad said, it's one of his favorites. He said it with a lovely accent I do not have, but uh, I, I also agree with it. This is a really fun conversation to have and a, and a way to sort of talk through things because we're now starting to get into how universal history operates and really where it all began. Uh, before we dive in, does anyone have any questions of where we left off last week? Uh, any any ran random comments that comes with that? Anything that you want to discuss while we're right here? Toss it up. Now would be the time. All right. Well, then uh, with that, I think I'm going to go ahead and uh, uh, push through and we're going to go ahead and start reading uh, Antioedipus 3.2, The Primitive Territorial Machine. The notion of territoriality merely appears ambiguous, for if it is taken to mean a principle of residence or of geographic distribution, it is obvious that the primitive social machine is not territorial. Only the apparatus of the state will be territorial in this sense, because following Engel's formula, it subdivides not the people, but the territory, and substitutes a geographic organization for the organization of gins. Yet, even where kinship seems to predominate over the earth, it is not difficult to show the importance of local ties. This is because the primitive machine subdivides the people, but does so on an indivisible earth where the connective, disjunctive, and conjunctive relations of each section are inscribed along with the other relations. Thus, for example, the coexistence or the complementarity of the section chief and the guardian of the earth. <clears throat> Pardon me. When the division extends to the earth itself by virtue of an administration that is landed and residential, this cannot be regarded as a promotion of territoriality. On the contrary, it is rather the effect of the first great movement of deterritorialization on the primitive commune. The imminent unity of the earth as the immobile motor gives way to a transcendent unity of an altogether different nature, the unity of the state. The full body is no longer that of the earth. It is the full body of the despot, the unengendered, which now takes charge of the fertility of the soil as well as the rain from the sky and the general appropriation of the productive forces. Hence, the savage, primitive socius was indeed the only territorial machine in the strict sense of the term, and the functioning of such a machine consists in the following the declension of alliance and filiation, declining the lineages on the body of the earth before there is a state. As I said, this is uh, where we start getting into their, their conception and genealogy of a universal history, the way that we sort of start looking back and finding how societies have shifted over time and how the socius specifically has changed and why and what, is, what has done such a thing. Uh, they're beginning immediately, as they've called this, the primitive territorial machine, not a, it's not a, th a term they're going to use uh, with, say, uh, capital or other socius, and there's a reason for that that they bring up here, and they're talking about sort of territoriality uh, on its own as why they're describing it and why they're talking through this. Uh, uh, Triad, did you want to dive in and give a better explanation? Well, maybe not. <clears throat> Sorry, maybe not diving in. Interesting that now. Um they are talking uh, very directly about this notion of territoriality and that it is not something that is merely 
uh, spatial, but it is something that is shaping and creating new forms of uh, interaction even before there is something in this uh, geographical territory. So in the primitive social, um, the savage, as they call them here, and I really don't like them, um, that this territorial machine um, shaping all these affiliations even before um, all of this yeah, how do I express it more um, biological and geographical shaping um, go to? So let's we'll we'll break down a handful of parts of this because this it's important that we actually really nail some of these points as we go. Um, the uh, Ojat, uh, I'm guessing the primitive machine is an impl implicit critique of Freud and Jung's primal horde idea. Um, I I think so. I, I would I would need someone to say for sure. Uh, I don't know if they've ever been explicit, but it does feel that direction to me. Uh, let, let's go through. So uh, as they talk about the notion of territoriality uh, and they, they open up, they're like, so first off, obviously territoriality can mean territory, the, the land that people occupy. Uh, but if we're talking about that in terms of residence or geographic distribution, look, it's, it's, we're not talking about that type of territory. The the state is territorial, but you know these people, and he does use the term primitive quite a bit. Um, and it's uh, it is the word. I'm already just I'm just going to stop apologizing for it because I did that a lot last time. But um, the he's like this isn't really about the primitive being this territorial thing. The, the state is it's what's going to divide up territories. The conception of territory, where my land ends and yours begins, or our land ends and the other, the lines drawn. It's not really a thing that existed during this time because the primitive machine is not about dividing land. It's about dividing people, but it does so on an earth that is allowing and, and part of the motor for the large scale, as we've discussed in, in chapter two, it's, it's the earth is part of that process of the, uh, uh, the unconscious, the, the connective, uh, the conjunctive and the disjunctive uh, relations, the process of things. Um, the example they give, the coexistence or complementary of the section chief, the guardian of the earth, uh, these kinds of things. Uh, the division itself is for the people, not the earth. That's when they're talking about territorial, they're like, we're starting there. We're not talking about that. Like they want to be very explicit. They're not talking about land. They're talking about the, the nature of how people become territorialized and, and, and that. Uh, hence, the savage primitive socius was indeed the only territorial machine in the strict sense of the term, because the the change that happens uh the change that shifts is the subdivision of territoriality the earth itself is completely unified there's a total absolute unity inside of this uh inside of the primitive territorial machine and that's why they call it as such the the, the machine is territorial but it is about the declension of an ally of alliance and filiation uh declining the lineages on the body of the earth before the state steps in and the despot steps in and does these things. That's my attempt to break down this uh, paragraph. Questions, mm. comments, thoughts? Yeah, this really helps to point out, uh, out this difference between um, the uh, primitive socius and the state who is uh, acting in a more virtual manner, I would say, um, with this relations and the, the territory of a people, for example, or of the uh, state apparatus. 
that is not bound to only uh, the direct geo geographical territory. Yeah, I think to expand on that, right, since we're talking about machine, right, what is being produced, right? Um, how is that process of production happening? So we know from this first paragraph that we're going to be, yes, system of a down, um, sorry, uh, we know that we're going to see the production of the declension of uh, the familial, of the affiliated and the, the aligned, right? So what does the Earth do here? You guys are right that it's not necessarily a, a, a geographic space, right? So it's not quite like a geopolitical or not the normal sense, right? We're seeing instead that the Earth is acting here as a quasi-cause. So it seems to be that the declension, the affiliation, right, where things come from is it's going to seem to be from the earth, but not from the earth as a territory, um, the right as the, the land itself, the soil. It's going to be how the soil is made to function by the earth as this machine, right? So it's not, so the earth in this function is going to be not quite the soil you hold in your hands, but how it actually conditions the Sort of the process of you holding the soil in your hands in that way, how that itself is being produced, the sort of the social construction that that's all going to be bound up in, or even like the bird and the soil, right? It's not, we don't want to make it anthropocentric either. So for me, the interesting, so for me, the, the last sentence here is kind of the really important part where it says that the functioning of such a machine consists in the following, the declension of alliance and affiliation, that Declension in this sense, uh, to, I believe, means the, the reshaping of what alliance and affiliation are within this machine and uh, the tying up of them. So to your point, Jack, like it's literally what he's saying here. The way the machine works is about the bending and twisting of what alliance and affiliation mean, declining the lineages on the body of the earth before there is a state. Um, that intention, uh, that that separation, the changing of the meaning of such things and, and warping what they do, uh, which I really think is fascinating. Um, yeah, that's exactly yeah. it, right? Because you're, you're getting the shaping of it all. So one way of saying it is like the socius here, what does it produce? What does it condition? It conditions relationships, it produces, um, and it, it creates the construction of them, right? Because the affiliative, is made possible by the socius in this way, right? Yeah, and I think I'm going to continue to the next paragraph um, because I think it expands on that a bit. If declension characterizes the primitive machine, it is because it is not possible simply to deduce alliance from filiation, the alliances from the filiative lines. It would be erroneous to ascribe to alliance no more than an individuating power over the persons of lineage. It produces instead a generalized distinguishability. E.R. Leach cites cases of very diverse matrimonial regimes where no difference in filiation can be inferred among the corresponding groups. In many analyses, the stress has been upon ties within the unilineal corporation or between different corporations linked by ties of common descent. The structural ties deriving from marriage between members of different corporations have largely been ignored or else assimilated into the all-important descent concept. Thus, Fortes, in 1953, 
while recognizing that ties of affinity have comparable importance to ties of assent, disguises the former under his expression complementary filiation. The essence of this concept, which resembles the Roman distinction between agnation and cognation, is that any ego is related to the kinsman of his two parents because he is the descendant of both parents and not because his parents were married. However, the cross ties linking the different patrilineages laterally are not felt by the peoples themselves to be the nature of descent. The continuity of the structure vertically through time is adequately expressed through the agnatic transmission of a patrilineal name. But the continuity of the structure laterally is not so expressed. Instead, it is maintained by a continuing chain of debt relations of an economic kind. It is the existence of these outstanding debts which assert the continuance of the affinal relationship. Oh, I, I really like this because it like foreshadows the idea we're going to be getting into in the rest of the chapter about the uh, movement of debt and blocks of debt uh, as they accelerate through the different types of socius up until where capitalism becomes the infinite movement of debt. Yes, well, the the big the big line here, uh, I think, through this the thread through this, is uh, the the change from the way sort of lineage and filiation are considered and how we're thinking through them, how they operate. Uh, the thing here he's uh, describing is looking back on and a lot of sociologists and anthropologists and all of that have talked about how these societies are organized and they do it from a like matrilineal or patrilineal lineage. Um, the, the filiation, the, uh, my child is this, I am this, my dad was that, his dad was this, and being able to trace that back. And there's some of that, obviously some of that. Everyone has a dad. We all came from somewhere. Everyone has a mom. We came out of someone. That's kind of the nature of something. But what he's saying is, like, wait, the, the lateral structure, the other direction, like, we have that. But there's this incredibly complex other thing that's happening here. The to the words he uses, but the continuity of the structure laterally is not so expressed. It's a thing that gets ignored. It's it's cousins, aunts, uncles, third cousins, fifth cousins, friend of the family who lives with us, my aunt's boyfriend because grand uncle died, uh, the family next door that we took in. The, the reality of how families grow wide isn't a thing that is considered inside of this. And... Uh, the, the line that opens it is kind of his point. Uh, if declension characterizes the primitive machine, the, the bending of these words, it is because it is not possible simply to deduce alliance from filiation. The alliances from the filiative lines. Who are we with? Who am I close to? Who is my family with? Why are we allied with them? Is not able to just be seen by saying, this is my dad and this is my mom. There's a lot more than that. Uh, it would be erroneous to ascribe to alliance no more than individuating power over the person's lineage. Uh, that's the idea. Oh, it's, it's, it's sort of, yeah, that it, maybe someone will get married and it's this person. It's like, no, no. It, it, instead, there's a generalized indistinguishability, a dis generalized distinguishability from it. I really like the, the whole paragraph here for that. I, I'll, I'll be brief here because I think the next paragraph goes into it. It explains what we're talking about more. Unfortunately, the, the definition kind of follows this, right? Affiliated and the line. And it's like the administrative, the economical, right? 
but yeah, that's I, I think that's pretty much it, right? Because as I read them here, they're saying that um, you you shouldn't explain the affiliative, or rather the the alliance or the affiliative, right? So what's happening horizontally is not necessarily determined by the vertical, right? So in Brooks's examples, right? What I am in terms of a father or a grandfather or my larger family tree, or if you want to put it into sort of like an organizational context, right? Uh, and say like, I don't know what it would be in the village, um, but you know, just something like administratively, right? Where my manager is above me and above them is the department head and above them is the CEO or whatever, right? The way people interact with each other at that horizontal level, right? What they're doing with each other, it's not necessarily determined by their rank any more than it would be um, by their status in a family tree, right? So it's just a vertical tracing, uh, like kind of like and tree structure we're all used to it yeah yeah it, it was just my my uh affirming mm -hmm. uh, and i really like the the term uh complementary affiliation that is used here this is just my two cents very much it's a really interesting sort of mentality and the other part to just say it, jack because it to see what ben was saying because it does come through here the the nature of descent uh, is not what feels the different patrilineages the way they're hooked up laterally. Um, instead, we are talking about outstanding debts which assert the continuance of the affinal relationship. The I'm with this family or this family is related to me in a lateral sense because of outstanding debts that are ongoing versus this is my dad, this is my mom, this is my brother, this is my child. Um, and this back and forth is the point. Now, to the next paragraph though. Because it does, uh, I think, uh, hopefully unconfuse a handful of things. Because we're about to go through affiliation uh, and alliance and how they operate. And this is the stuff to remember if you're taking notes. Affiliation uh, is administrative and hierarchical. But alliance is political and economic. And expresses power insofar as it is not fused with the hierarchy and cannot be deduced from it and the economy insofar it is not identical with administration. Big sentence, super important one. Filiation and alliance are like the two forms of a primitive capital, fixed capital or affiliative stock and circulating capital or mobile blocks of debt. There are two memories that correspond to them. The one biophiliative, the other a memory of alliance and of words. Well, production is recorded in the network of filiative disjunctions on the socius, the connections of labor still must detach themselves from the productive process and pass into the element of recording that appropriates them for itself as quasi-cause. But it can accomplish this only by reclaiming the connective regime for its own form of an affinal tie or a pairing of persons that is compatible with the disjunctions of filiation. It is in this sense that the economy goes by way of alliance. In the production of children, the child is inscribed in relation to the disjunction lines of its father or mother, but inversely, the disjunctive lines inscribe it only through a connection represented by the marriage of the father and the mother. At no time, therefore, does alliance derive from filiation, but both form an essentially open cycle where the socius acts on production, but also where production reacts on the socius. 
a thing that'll help pull back a little bit. What is the primitive? Uh, because that's the other part. We're not talking just about like, oh, cavemen are like this or the first man or anything like that. It's a very, very specific part of uh, what they're calling essentially the history of man. And it is a level where, uh, how, how, how is it that, um, I'm trying to remember uh, how uh, Holland calls it. I think he refers to it as primitive communism. Uh, the, the, the savagery in that world is a stateless society where people are people in groups, uh, the, um, uh, indigenous Americans, indigenous people kind of anywhere, but indigenous Americans are an example of one of these societies, uh, the way that they operate and how they work. Uh, the, it's from classrooms, yeah, society against the state, uh, primitive society. Um, so when we're talking about that, when we're having these conversations and we're playing with us, be thinking about what life is like inside of those situations. When we talk about affiliation being administrative and hierarchical, that's my father is the one who came before me. He knows more than I do. I follow in his footsteps. I, I, I do that. Someday I will have a child or I'm a daughter. And the, the nature of sort of playing these out and setting these things up is administrative, but deeply hierarchical. I follow my father's orders. He came before he has experience. Alliance, uh, hey, uh, let's join up with that family, as an example. Let's have a bunch of families together. Alliance is political and economic. Uh, it is not necessarily expressed, uh, infused with hierarchy uh, itself. It can't necessarily be deduced with it. Who's with who is lateral. It's not someone's in charge of another thing in the same way. Alliance is a different setup. Uh, they call it uh, two forms of primitive capital, fixed capital or affiliative stock on the one side because... Uh, what are you able to do? Well, we have uh, we have one son and that's it. Well, you're able to sort of hunt. Mom can do a thing. Dad can do a thing. And you've got a whole bunch of shit to do. So you need to have a lot of people because this is your this is your affiliative stock. This is your capital, essentially, uh, for you to sort of deal with life on an everyday thing. You can't do it on your own. So you need other people to help. And so that's the uh, the other side, the circulating capital, mobile blocks of debts. Uh, oh, I I'm not a hunter. My family doesn't hunt. Steve hunts. He hunted a thing and brought it over to us. Well, I, now I owe, I owe Steve. And that alliance that is generated out of such a thing is the two sides of what they're talking about. It's my breakdown of this uh, from the last time we went through this and I re-listened. Uh, generally, I think I'm spot on with that, but I'd love any feedback or thoughts. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. But still, this first sentence is, is intriguing me because it, it seems so, it's an, uh, so essential and you pointed this out already, but it reads for me almost like uh, do Deleuze and Gattari at one point in this book express a very um, more in-depth analysis of power or something uh, in this notion because here in this sentence it reads almost like there are two forms of power for them. Because um, the alliance is political and economic and expresses power insofar it is not fused with the hierarchy and cannot be deduced from it. So it is this uh, horizontal power and uh, in filiation there, there almost seems to be no power in this economic sense, but it is purely hierarchical in the sense. So are these just two modes of a... Uh, more general form of power or are these very different from each other and cannot be um um i i, I read yeah, it with each other so specifically i read it as 
uh, when he says uh, the alliance is political and expresses power insofar as it is not fused with hierarchy and cannot be deduced from it. Uh, hierarchy and administration and power can instantly be deduced by the nature of the hierarchy within, within filiation. Uh, it's a thing that's instantaneous. It's understanding. It's directly related to sort of you know momentary behaviors and how things are set up. It's clean and it's crisp. And it's the thing that he's talking about, I think, in reference to the previous few paragraphs as he's going through his like ethnology and these other writers who have talked about, you know, this, uh, you know, the previous the E.R. Leach and his entire piece. I think he's saying in reference to that. Uh, but I, okay. I'd be I'd be hesitant to say that he's saying filiation doesn't have power. I think he's the argument here is essentially that we're talking about two types of primitive capital. And that the line there is important to me because when we talk about fixed capital and circulating capital, those uh, sort of realities between filiative here and alliance, uh, the mobile blocks of debts or the stock that I have, uh, those two sides uh, have within them, uh, because they are this primitive capital, they're the socius, uh, the, the primitive territorial machine is the socius. It does after the fact. It is that, what is the line he uses? Uh, it appropriates the productive process as a quasi-cause. So administration, uh, the hierarchy, the, the affiliative and the alliances become the quasi-cause of everything that happens on two different sides for two different reasons. One being the economic, the other being almost uh, a pure polit a pure power of uh, hierarchy. If that makes sense, that's kind of my interpretation. Yeah, yeah, this helps. So it, it's not like uh, there, there is no power in, in affiliation, but it is more... Um, understandable or more evident uh, and in alliance you have this more uh, entangled forms of of capital and of uh, power so to speak 100 uh, percent. it's, it's a... not no sorry go ahead go ahead uh, yeah that, that are not just uh, everyday uh, evident on the first side or just by knowing uh, which daughter uh, uh, is this from from uh, what father or from what family because in uh, this economic and political interaction uh, power gets expressed in a, a very sophisticated way and you have to um, understand the interplay between uh, the different uh, elements, so to speak, uh, in their qualities uh, and not only in their, uh, uh, like like in a um, family tree. Oh, yeah. you, you just see the graph from, from what it came from. Okay, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and I think... Also, I think... I think yeah. Uh, like when you look at fixed capital and affiliative cap or uh, circulating capital, like I, so like uh, if I am like one family and I have like my familial capital, I have like my 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 offspring to invest, right? And I invest them with like another kind of familial lineage, but at some point that also creates like an unspoken debt that is separate from the physical thing and then this debt can be like traded and circulated right so like i i give a daughter to this family and then they owe me something but they could have another tribe or family or whatever that owes them something and this debt can kind of get moved around even though the fixed object that generated it doesn't yeah and I, i'd add in also um that this has to do with their other way of that, how they talk about um, power, how they talk about economics and how these things work. We'll get through this because it's, it's the entire chapter and I'm not wanting to skip ahead and have a longer conversation, but I think 
exactly your point here at Triad is something that is basically what this entire chapter is about and talking through how power wields its its sort of ugly face in these different parts. Um, and because it the the line that I really like inside of this is is the one about appropriating itself for itself as quasi cause, but it can accomplish this only by reclaiming the connective regimes for its own in the form of an affinal tie or a pairing of persons that is compatible with the disjunctions affiliation. It is in this sense that the economy goes by way of alliance. They had, I have kids that kid, like my son, for example, that he is like in my line, that's done. He's part of my, my familial line because otherwise he's dead if I don't like take care of him. So he's part of my world. At some point, maybe he'll take care of me. Probably not. But uh, like this setup the is almost uh, like assumed, I think would be the way I would want to put it. It's built into the process. Whereas the uh, alliances and the way that I work or way I pair with someone else, uh, that's by in cho putting choice in quotes. You can't see me doing air quotes, but this is how you expand out. And that's why the economy starts there. It's a different setup. It's a, it's how I work with other groups that I have the affiliative lines with, and there's other affiliative lines. How they connect is the economy. And that distinction, I think, is going to become incredibly important, especially when we move into the despotic. Because... Like there's almost inside of this, there is no direct power within the the savage, uh, the the whatever this whatever we want to call this at this point. Um, there's no power relations in the same way that as we know them, or like this weird sort of large scale outside power. There's not really an economy in the way that we know economy. People are the power. People are the economy, and the direct relationships there are doing it. There's no larger sort of thing or representation that plays them. And that's kind of, I think, a lot of the point he's making here. Yeah, so there's no market, no no generalized exchange mediums like money and stuff like that. Yeah, that, that that's right. That's pretty important. I forgot about it. I forgot about that. Yeah, and I'm going to get to the next paragraph because it kind of continues that thought. Um, uh, oh, uh, Rimke says, uh, why do they call it biophiliative this time? Um, I'm going to assume there's a big uh, translation reason for that or translator reason for that is actually going to be my guess. Um, I think generally speaking, we are talking about, especially in savage, ti savage times, uh, I'm going to call it Turok land because that just makes me feel better. Um, biophiliative and filiative are identical words effectively during this. There's some level where it's not, but specifically inside of that paragraph, they're talking about the production of children. That's biophiliative. That's the, the production of children is the thing they're talking about. Like, I know it's weird to talk about it like that because like, but we're talking about the production of people as your own stock, because that's the only way you can fucking do anything. You need 20 fucking kids because 10 of them die and you need to run a farm or you need to hunt or you need to have people doing things like you need a bunch of the kids. It's a different place, different mentality. Um, but next paragraph. Uh, Marxists are right to remind us that if kinship is dominant in primitive society, it is determined as dominant by economic and political factors. And if filiation expresses what is dominant while being itself determined, alliance expresses what is dominant, or rather the return of the determinant in the determinate system of dominance. That is why it is essential to take into consideration how ties of alliance combine concretely with relations affiliation on a given territorial surface. 
Leach has specifically underscored the importance of local lineages insofar as they are differentiated from lineages of filiation, and insofar as they operate at the level of small segments. It is these groups of men residing in the same area, or in neighboring areas, who arrange marriages and shape concrete reality to a much greater extent than do the systems of filiation and the abstract matrimonial classes. A kinship system is not a structure, but a practice, a praxis, a method, and even a strategy. Lewis Berth, analyzing a relationship of alliance and hierarchy, shows convincingly that a village intervenes as a third party to permit matrimonial connections between elements that the disjunction of the two moieties would forbid from the strict viewpoint of structure. Quote, the third term must be interpreted much more as a method than as a true structural element. To continue that line, a kinship system is also, and first of all, a praxis, uh, Levi Strauss. Uh, every time one interprets kinship relationship relations in the primitive commune in terms of a structure unfolding in the mind, mind one relapses into an ideology of large segments that make alliance depend on the major affiliations and that finds itself contradicted by practice. Quote, it is necessary to ask if there exists in the asymmetrical system of alliance a fundamental tendency towards generalizing exchange, that is to say, toward the closing of the cycle. I have been unable to find anything of that nature among the Maru. Everyone behaves as if he were ignorant of the compensation that would result from the closing of the cycle, and everyone stresses the relationship of asymmetry, emphasizing the creditor-debtor behavior. End quote. A kinship system only appears closed to the extent that it is severed from the political and economic references that keep it open and that make alliance something other than an arrangement of matrimonial classes and filiative lineages. It ends with, I think, the point that's being made. I'll, I'll toss it out. It ends with the point being made that, like, look, you, you look at families and lineages during these times, and you can look at it, uh, again, go find a, an American history textbook in a high school talking about how families of American Indians uh, lived, and you'll see that they really believe that these are closed groups of families, that there is... that. Oh, they're closed groups, and oh, they find this one little piece that connects them. They marry someone to someone else. It's like that's that's the little connection between these large hierarchies. And the argument they're making is that that's absurd. It's a kinship system only appears closed to the extent it is severed from the political and economic references that keep it open. The line that they have here about uh, the everyone behaves as if you were ignorant of the compensation that would result from closing the cycle. Uh, a gift economy type thing. I give Triad something super, super expensive, and uh, his job is to keep it open. Like the, the job of someone in these societies is to allow these things to be outstanding, to allow debt to stand, because this becomes the ties that bind. If he were to close it out or we were to pay back, I, everyone would like make more money in theory or have more shit, but that's not the point. That's not how it works. It's not about families getting richer, which is commonly how people talk. It's about uh, the alliances and the power structures that people now can take part in and the entire setup as it exists as a person-to-person -person setup, if that makes sense. This is, again, my take, but I really like this chapter, and we spent a ton of time on it last time. Um, uh, I'll throw out 
other examples in here. See if someone's going to be willing to jump in. Uh, when he talks about Leach uh, underscoring the importance of local lineages insofar as they are differentiated from lineages affiliation and insofar as they operate at the level of small segments, those groups that reside in the same area or neighboring areas who arrange marriages and shape concrete reality to a much greater extent than the system's affiliation. I can have, again, a whole bunch of kids. They'll do what I want and we'll figure it out and we can survive. But if we can marry a few of them off, and if I can have a larger sort of uh, structure that I'm able to take part in as a person, Jesus, like suddenly I don't have to worry about it as much. The, the large, massive groups of, again, uh, indigenous Americans who would travel or some would stay, some would go, how they would hunt, the, the benefits drastically outweighed all of it. Uh, the, the nature of debt being a thing that sort of is left outstanding and sits there and waits for all of us to sort of drive us together is an incredibly powerful thing. And I, re I really love this way of looking through, this lens of looking through all of that. Uh, I, I really like it because when, you, when, when you're describing it in this way, it is not a null-sum game that uh, I just give back this debt and uh, uh, then it's all, uh, it's all cool. Okay, we are just uh, closing the circle and uh, everything is fine now. But when we are opening uh, up the circle in this economic and um, political fashion, so with uh, the the expansion in relation to resources and to power, so to speak, uh, when it gets political and uh, economic, by that um, this this kinship almost um, behaves like like an organism that is trying to expand uh, its uh, reach and its its grasp uh, in that sort of sense, and not only just trying to to uh, yeah, ma make a favor or stuff like that. It is the same for the whole project of coding the flows. How does one ensure reciprocal adaptation, the respective embrace of a signifying chain and flows of production? The great nomad hunter follows the flows, exhausts them in place and moves on with them to another place. He reproduces in an accelerated fashion, his entire affiliation and contracts it into a point that keeps him in a direct relationship with the ancestor or the god. Pierre Clastres describes the solitary hunter who becomes identical with his force and his destiny and delivers his song in a language that becomes increasingly rapid and distorted. Me, 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 I am a powerful nature, a nature incensed and aggressive. Such are the two characteristics of the hunter, the great paranoiac of the bush or the forest, real displacement with the flows and direct filiation with the god. It has to do with the nature of nomadic space where the full body of the socius is as if adjacent to production. It has not yet brought production under its sway. The space of the encampment remains adjacent to that of the forest. It is constantly reproduced in the process of production, but has not yet appropriated this process. The apparent objective movement of inscription has not suppressed the real movement of nomadism. But a pure nomad does not exist. There is always and already an encampment where it is a matter of stocking, however little, and where it is a matter of inscribing and allocating, of marrying, and of feeding oneself. Clastris shows well how, among the Guayaki, the connection between the hunters and the living animals is succeeded in the encampment by a disjunction between the dead animals and the hunters, a disjunction similar to an incest prohibition, since the hunter cannot consume his own kill. In short, 
as we shall see elsewhere, there is always a pervert who succeeds the paranoiac or accompanies him, somewhat times the same man in two situations, the bush paranoiac and the village pervert. One, uh, I love Clastris. We should do another reading of Society Against the State and maybe a, a larger one or maybe just an hour on it because it's such an amazing little piece. Um, it's how interesting does... that there exists. Oh, sorry. No, no, go for it. Yeah, I just uh, find it interesting that uh, there is no pure nomad or uh, it doesn't exist because it would be something that is purely um, displaced in the sense uh, with the flows and, and ha would have no identity or I would say no agency to even act because there has to be at least a hint of this specific disjunction between uh, an acting hunter and its surroundings, for example, uh, with some goals and with some uh, strivings, with, uh, with drives, uh, with, with goals and, and fears. So, uh, so that this encampment, uh, however, how little this happens, um, is able to happen. Um, and this reminds me a bit of, um, I guess it was in Freud and also in um, Derrida when it is uh, mentioned that uh, for this creation of identity or of forms of structure, a form of disjunction or uh, there of... Um, differing and deferring in this temporal sense is necessary so you have this disjunction not only in a spatial sense that you only uh, go with the flow so to speak but you uh, encapsulate yourself uh, from uh, your milieu you can then uh, act within and uh, can ascribe meaning from this perspective but also in a spatial sense that uh, it is necessary to uh, form some uh, sort of economic behavior that you can plan, you can withhold your drives for a specific uh, reason to function in a specific way. Yeah, and, and uh, just to mention a conversation that's happening in chat, as we go through this, uh, again, the, the idea of universal history to say very plainly is that uh, it isn't a matter of one thing changing into another, into another, and then we get here. It's that as... Uh, things happen within society and societies exist. Uh, they spring up, they pop up through all sorts of contingent events and they're made of all sorts of different parts and gears and mechanisms. And as one shifts into another, it keeps some of the ones, even though they may not work super well, and it drops off other ones. And then the next one does the same thing. And slowly over time, pieces that may have been left behind as uh, sort of the appendix of a society suddenly rears its head to become functional again and uh, they end up working together to create a thing so as we get through this you will notice there are stuff they're talking about here that is very true within our society or in our socius and there's connections between it uh, and you are right to make those connections they are they're laying this out with that intention so i just wanted to mention that for sure it's not exactly the same but there's changes but it's there um, one of the things that's really also important here is the, the way that they talk about uh, the hunter and the animals, uh, because this is going to become something that becomes very important specifically in the next chapter. But the idea of uh, a hunter not able to consume his own kill. So let's say uh, all of us are in a tribe, we're going out and I go out hunting. Uh, I kill a deer and I'm awesome. 
I stop, I sit, I create a fire, I cut parts off, and then I come back with, you know, the rest after I've eaten the best part. Uh, that That's not good for anybody. In fact, it's, it's pretty much assumed that I'm not killing this for myself, that that's not really the drive, that this is part of my debt to the group, part of my debt to things that is kind of hanging over me, that is pushing me forward. Uh, so me killing my, me consuming my own kill is taboo. Uh, but as they say, there is always a pervert who succeeds the paranoiac or accompanies him. Someone who learned, oh, well, what if I did consume my own kill? Uh, or as I'll, what if I did fuck my own mom? <laughs> I suppose. Um, I love, I love this entire chapter is so fun to go through now. Any other last thoughts on this before I move to the next paragraph? Once the socius becomes fixed, falling back on the productive forces and appropriating them for its own, the problem of coding can no longer be resolved by the simultaneity of a displacement from the standpoint of flows and an accelerated reproduction from the standpoint of the chain. The flows must be the object of deductions that constitute a minimum of stock, and the signifying chain must be the object of detachments that constitute a minimum of mediations. A flow is coded insofar as detachments from the chain and deductions from the flows are affected in correspondence, united in a mutual embrace. And this is already the highly perverse activity of local groups who arrange marriages on the surface of the primitive territoriality, a normal or non-pathological perversity, as Henry A. would say, referring to other cases where, quote, a psychic work of selection, refinement, and calculation, end quote, was manifested. And this is the case from the start, since there does not exist a pure nomad who can be afforded the satisfaction of drifting with the flows and singing direct filiation, but always a socius waiting to bear down, already deducting and detaching. The idea of the pure nomad not existing here uh, is uh, a thing I've, I've recently used. We were having a, I was having a conversation about uh, the uh, fetishization of, uh, of Aboriginal people and how uh, the, the way that people go, oh, I wish we could be like, we, we watched Avatar. So there you go. It's a, the love of that. I wish I could just be free. And it's like, look, they, they weren't. They weren't free. There's no such thing as a, as a to quote here, as a pure nomad, not in that sense. They they did a thing because they have stock here waiting. They have a woman there needing to be married. They're part of this. There's there's no free wandering solo thing inside of this fantasy. Sorry. Roommate was talking to me. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, so it's a to me that's a lot of what they're saying here is kind of that idea of the. You know this idealized version of the nomad, or the, you know, the in Avatar, the the lone hunter who can hang out on his own. Um, there's there's no such thing. They're part of systems as well, and uh, always it's always been the case. Ojot uh, says that sounds like fierce egalitarianism, like nomads distribute power in the sense that hunters would never hunt without arrowheads carved by themselves. Instead, they exchange them before the hunt. He who killed the game would never bring it back to the village. It would be the others. They put in place all of these ways of redistributing powder. It's, it is, it's, 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 I don't even know if it's necessarily an idea of redistributing power as it is the way that debts have to be played out and what I owe through my actions, what my job is. That's a terrible wording for this because 
they probably didn't think about it like we do jobs, but like, what am I supposed to do? I'm supposed to do this thing that yields these other things. And other people are there to kind of take over from that. Because again, a, a pure affiliative line, probably the son uh, in these would spend, go out, kill, have to bring it home, probably do the, like the carving, like it's one person, all of it. That's alliances aren't for that. This is the economy of it is there's there's distribution of the work. There's distribution of uh, the the coding of the flows and all of this that that force these sort of larger stories to take place uh, that to me kind of balances flows and balances the setup in its way. Again, we'll get into how that's done, but that feels right to me. Am I far off anyone? No, I, I really like this, especially when you compare it with this one sentence, a flow is coded insofar uh, as attachments from a chain and deductions uh, from the flows are effected in correspondence united in a mutual embrace. Yeah, it's it's oh, a, yeah, I would say every, spot on. Yeah, it's all it's all just consistently mutual, which is the part that I also really think is an is a really interesting way to look at this. It, again, the idea of the noble savage and uh, all of these sort of tropes in a lot of uh, mythology that especially plays to what I would call modern individualism. They they pretend <laughs> that that at, oh at one point I could have been a hermit, I could have been the warrior on the plane. It's like no, nah, dude, no. This look, this shit is this is how societies work. Families even had to deal with this shit when they get married to another family. They were indebted, and you had to deal with this. And you had to deal with that large group. That's my dog telling me that she wants out. So uh, I will be right back. Someone else talk. I just wrote in the chat, and uh, I have no idea of uh, politics and practical philosophy because it is so practical. Ugh, who likes that? Uh, but isn't this something maybe when where uh, ANCAPs and, and anarcho-primitivists get mad because uh, at least the persons I know who tend to lean to this uh, thinking uh, have this ro very romanticized view of, uh, yeah, I can just live on uh, alone like I'm playing uh, all of these uh, zombie survival games. I just forgot the name for them. Like, oh yeah, I, I could build this and I could build that. I don't need anyone. I don't need nobody. Uh, and stuff yeah. like that. But but still, it's forgotten how, how many uh, things you would need to prepare and how much easier it is to get stuff done, uh, at least in, in a small group. And yeah. Yeah, it's an, it's an exponential shift uh, in the positive with, with groups of people. And it's, again, but even even without that, like as being like this really hyper practical reason, their point is that already we're there. Already this is happening. There is no pure nomad who can be afforded the satisfaction of drifting with the flows and singing direct filiation. Yes, on my family is all that matters. My family is the only thing, but always associates waiting to bear down, already deducting and detaching. Uh, in the previous uh, paragraph, they have the line that I love. There is no, a pure nomad does not exist. There is always an already an encampment where it is a matter of stocking, however little, and where it is a matter of inscribing and allocating, of marrying and of feeding oneself. Uh, that line, no matter however little, there's always an encampment that needs stocking, which I really like uh, as a nice line. Um, to continue, though, uh, the flow deductions constitute a filiative stock 
in the uh, in the signifying chain. But inversely, the detachments from the chain constitute mobile debts of alliance that guide and direct the flows. On the blanket that serves as the familial stock, a phenol stones or cowries are made to circulate. There is a sort of vast cycle of flows of production and chains of inscription, and a lesser cycle between the stocks of filiation that connect or encast the flows and the blocks of alliance that cause the chains to flow. Descent is, at the same time, flow of production and chain of inscription, stock of filiation and fluxion of alliance. Everything takes place as though the stock constituted a surface energy of inscription or recording, the potential energy of the apparent movement. But debt is the actual direction of this movement, a kinetic energy that is determined by the respective paths of the gifts and counter-gifts on the surface. Among the kula, the circulation of necklaces and bracelets comes to a standstill in certain places, on certain occasions, so the stock may be reformed. There are no productive connections without disjunctions affiliation that appropriate them, but there are no disjunctions affiliation that do not reconstitute lateral connections across the alliances and pairings of persons. Not only the flows and the chains, but the fixed stocks and the mobile debts, insofar as they in turn imply relations between chains and flows in both directions, are in a state of perpetual relativity. Their elements vary. Women, consumer goods, ritual objects, rights, prestige, status. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a different way of looking at things for sure. <laughs> now, especially against the current normative standard here in America, it's a little, a little out, uh, which I... The first time we were going through this, I just remember this being like, okay, so wait, what? Family is what? Because it's through the lens of now. It's like, no, step back. Like, descent is, at the same time, flow of production and chain of inscription. Uh, the descent being uh, who my father was, who my son will be, descent, the lineage. This is a flow of production, and it is a chain of inscription. I am my father's son. My son is my son, and he will call me father. Uh, it is a stock of filiation. These are the people that I have in my filiation. Kind of a built-in built in stock. And also a flexion of alliance. This is where I may be based on what these people do. I will have new alliances. I will have new setups and new debts that I will have to pay off or be owed. Everything takes place as though the stock people constituted a surface energy of inscription recording, the potential energy of movement. But debt is the actual direction of this movement a kinetic energy that is determined by the respective paths of the gifts and counter-gifts on the surface. Uh, it's a hell of a thing. Uh, basically saying that actually, no, affiliation is not how this has worked, ever. It's actually mostly through alliance. Uh, which, uh, to someone's earlier point, who was asking whether or not this was uh, sort of a very, very specific comment against uh, Freud and uh, <clears throat> Jung. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think so. This is a, about the primal horde, and I think it's shitting on it personally. I really like also how they speak about uh, surface energy and potential energy. This really made it click for me, as as you just described it as well, uh, that there's almost like when when something new is created there, or you are in depth with someone, uh, and and you get this new artifact, uh, so to speak, or you crafted something very useful for uh, other people, 
you have this potential energy in uh, on the surface but you cannot do whatever you want with it you are all already within this energetic network on the surface and it uh, pulls you uh, almost to uh, to your debt to to uh, for example pay back your debt there or to help a friend out and all this stuff because there are all these very interesting relative connections between uh, people and these objects uh, and as they write later that these are uh, in a state of perpetual relativity so it's constantly shifting all these states and relationships between these people and uh, these are not fixed by just their their name or by out of whom's vagina they came <laughs> any uh comments questions anything so far because i think we're actually i think we're actually doing pretty solid through this 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 took us a few readings last time um and I, I don't think this, I, I think this part is open to a lot less interpretation than other parts of this. I'm going to be, I, I'm, I'm open if you disagree with me. Like, I'm very open to that. But I haven't really ever found people who necessarily disagree with, like, this is actually a pretty clean set of things to be pulling from what you do with it after that and what comes in, like, chapter four or the implications of chapter three is different. But I think right now we're still in that. Here's what they're saying, and we're pretty clear on that and all of that. So... If you have questions and it's not super clear, please do ask. Or if you have a different reading, I would love to hear it. I like super would love to hear it because I haven't found a lot of... If one postulates that somewhere there has to be a kind of equilibrium of prices, one is compelled to see in the manifest disequilibrium of a relations of pathological consequence, which one explains by saying that the supposedly closed system extends in one direction and opens as the prestations become wider and more complex. But... Such a conception is a contradiction with the primitive cold economy, which is without net investment, without money and market, and without exchangeist commodity relations. The mainspring of such an economy is a veritable surplus value of code. Each detachment from the chain produces, on one side or the other in the flows of production, phenomena of excess and deficiency, phenomena of lack and accumulation which will be compensated for by non-exchangeable elements of the acquired prestige or distributed consumption type. Uh, quote, the chief converts this perishable wealth into imperishable prestige through the medium of spectacular feasting. The ultimate consumers are in this way the original producers. End quote. Surplus value of code is the primitive form of surplus value inasmuch as it corresponds to Mouse's celebrated formula the spirit of a thing given, or the force of circumstance that requires that gifts be reciprocated with interest, being territorial signs of desire and power, and principles of abundance and the fructification of wealth. Far from being a pathological consequence, the disequilibrium is functional and fundamental. Far from being the extension of a system that is at first closed, the opening is primary, founded in the heterogeneity of the elements that compose the prestations and that compensate for the disequilibrium by displacing it. In short, the detachments from the signifying chain, in accordance with the relations of alliance, engender surplus values of code at the level of flows, whence are derived differences in states between the filiative lines, for example, the superior or inferior ranks of the givers and receivers of wives. The surplus value of code carries out the diverse operations of the primitive territorial machine, detaching segments from the chain, 
organizing selections from the flows and allocating the portions due each person. A lot said here. Jesus Christ. There's so much said in all of these. Uh, to, only, to not be able to spend hours on a paragraph. Um, we're talking now about the way surplus code and, and how the economy operates within the primitive territorial socius. The, the, the mainspring of the primitive economy is the surplus value of code. The example they give, uh, and it's the one it's footnoted, uh, very simply, I will read here, it's from Leash, uh, but it's in a reference to the idea that uh, the people who harvest and gather everything, at some point you have excess code that has been created, and you have this, you have this massive amount of shit that the people have harvested, the actual production. But the chief goes, excellent, we feast, and they have this like massive food orgy, and then all of it's consumed in this glorious moment, and in that, the food and the production is actually converted, and, and they mean it quite literally, converted uh, into prestige that is not perishable. The food may go bad. You can have too much food. It goes to shit. But if you have a feast, that prestige of being, look at what I've done as the chief. Look at what has happened to us. The prestige of that doesn't perish. And so you have this change in how the flows work. You have this, this excess that is part of it. And the odd part of the entire thing is the consumers of this excess wealth are actually the ones who produced the wealth in the first place. They're, they're the farmers. That You have a feast. You don't have a feast amongst just the wealthy and the primitive society. Everyone, everyone has this huge orgy. And so if I pick like a hundred coconuts and and to kill a whole bunch of hogs and all we have this, all this food, the people who did that are the ones who feast. They're the ones who actually produced it. Then they consume it and they convert it oddly enough, into prestige for the chief, for the clan, for the group, for the people in charge, for whatever it is. Um, I, I think that's almost a utopianistic uh, interpretation of the producers being the consumers, because quite often the, uh, the beneficiaries of something like a feast are not necessarily the people responsible for producing what is... Uh, consumed in it as opposed i think uh, a less utopian way to read a statement like that is that the people at the feast who are consuming the feast are also the people who are producing the prestige so a handful of leech's books and i mean levi strauss's too do talk about how it feasts tend to be like a tribe-wide thing now that we're talking specifically i'm not talking about during despotic because in despotic times when they get into that uh and later and I mean, now, yeah, feasts are not for everyone. The worker's not invited. But there is a, a point within uh, a lot of it. Uh, yeah, Webcam Parrot uh, mentions potlatch. And there's no way this isn't related to Bataille. This is the idea of excess and all of that. Um, oh, no, am I crackling? Yeah, a bit, at least for me. All right. You're talking. Someone talk, I'll be right back. Yeah, same. It's not that bad, but it's just uh, a bit weird. I, just, I, yeah, I thought something is uh, happening with my monitors. <laughs> I, mean, I don't know if any, anybody else is familiar with the Bataille stuff. I don't know how much I want to... Are we talking like the accursed share and stuff? I'm thinking more of Visions of Excess, but... I hate it. He talks about it in the accursed share as well. Um, Is that better, by the way? Sorry, now I got it working. I didn't mean to interrupt, please. It sounded like I was going to try to say something. Um, I, I have read uh, Cursed Share. We did a reading of it, actually. Uh, and uh, I always recommend Acid Horizon did a wonderful 
a bit on Bataille and talk through it. Craig has a fantastic grasp on Bataille just in general. Um, uh, all, of, all of those people over at Asset Horizon do. Um, so I'd recommend that if you're interested, but uh, please continue. I mean, the, in, in, in Visions of Excess, he talks about like the two types of production. The tide is this, is, uh, which I can only assume is in some way a, a response to Marx, right? But, but either way, it's just the first type of production is like the bare utility, you know, the, just the things that um, a society does to survive or an individual might do to survive. Um, and, then he, and then the second type of production is like the excess, right? And, and he says that like this excess or this wastefulness is like the true life-affirming production, that it is 100% life-affirming and that you're not really living um, if, you, if you aren't doing it. And uh, the analogy that he actually gives is he like compares like the societal structure to like a, uh, a parent-to-child dynamic um, where, for instance, uh, as an example, you might be trans or gay um, but your family that you're dependent on is homophobic or transphobic, or whatever, and it might not be safe for you to to come out. And so the utility would be to just uh, keep keep it to yourself, you know, and stay in the closet and stay safe. But it's more life affirming to take the risk, to be wasteful, to to risk yourself, to um, you know, live as as being gay or, or trans or whatever, even though. Um, it actually hurts you from a pure utility point of view. Um, and this um, criticism was given to him, and, and I give this explanation because this criticism was given to him of the potlatch in that it was, he, he describes it like it's pure wastefulness. And actually people have been like, oh, it's not pure wastefulness because the, the person who turns up to the potlatch, you know, with the most stuff to waste gets social credit. You know, they get a claim that it makes their tribe look good. It makes it look like they can produce more, a lot more than they need. It makes them look strong or whatever. But I just maintain that Bataille always intended that um, to be part of what he meant by waste. I'm absolutely not well read enough to disagree with that or agree with it too much, but I kind of, I kind of get it. It kind of lines up what we were saying, right? It's like a symbolic exchange. Uh, and though it's wasteful in a certain way, it's not like that waste goes doesn't go anywhere, right? It doesn't just like void. Um, it, that energy or whatever you want to call it still goes somewhere. So I'm also going to say I think though that Ben, I think Ben's phrasing may be right here versus mine. Um, I still think that in general, I think the interpretation I had is not necessarily wrong, but I do think Deleuze is making a wry comment here like if i could see his face he would have a little bit of a, a sly smile where his line says the chief converts perishable wealth into imperishable prestige the ultimate consumers are in this way the original producers the ultimate consumers being the people who ultimately consume it by creating the prestige they're actually almost inflating and creating the uh, uh the excess and they're utilizing that, and they're the ones who are basically giving the energy to the economy. Is that kind of what you're saying, Ben? Yeah, I, I think I think that's my kind of interpretation of why it's said in the order that it's said. Uh, I might just be like 
reading too much into that, but everywhere else in Anti-Oedipus, Deleuze has been pretty deliberate with his word choice. Yeah, I'm going to read the footnote real quick. Um, last thing, Webcam Parrot. Um, I, if there's any chance you'd be up for doing like a half hour or an hour on Bataille on this idea and sort of talking through it in the next couple of weeks, I'd, I think I would encourage us to have that happen because I'm, I'm just not, I'm not well read enough, but I really do want to chase that down, uh, just to mention. Um, to read the footnote. Also, the criticism Leach addresses to Levi Strauss. Levi Strauss rightly argues that the structural implications of a marriage can only be understood if we think of it as one item in the whole series of transactions between kin groups. So far, so good. But in none of the examples which he provides in his book does he carry this principle far enough. Fundamentally, he is not really interested in the nature and significance of the counterprestations that serve as equivalents for women in the system he is discussing. We cannot predict from first principles how the different categories of prestation will be evaluated in any particular society. It is very important to distinguish between consumable and non-consumable materials. It is also very important to appreciate that quite intangible elements such as rights and prestige form part of the total inventory of things exchanged. I'm going to say I think ben, I think Ben's reading here is spot on. Um, and I think the idea, again, the core idea is that we're, we're not just talking about, hey, the people made food. And yeah, someone ate it, but that's its own thing. It's like, no, there, there's intangibles that are actually generated through this process that are actually created. That The way flows work, how they get coded, decoded, how chains break, how excess gets made. All these things are like super important super important and uh that setup is this baseline of how we need to start thinking about how the socius and how the economy and the people of these times operated versus the idea of the uh the horde i suppose uh, the idea that primitive societies have no history that they are dominated by archetypes and their repetition is especially weak and inadequate Ken, I fully expect you, by the way, to be ready to respond to this. Uh, this idea was not conceived by ethnologists, but by ideologists in the service of a tragic Judeo-Christian consciousness that they wished to credit with the invention of history. If what is called history is a dynamic and open social reality in a state of functional disequilibrium or an oscillating equilibrium, unstable and always, comp always compensated, comprising not of not only institutionalized conflicts, but conflicts that generate changes, revolts, ruptures, and scissions, then primitive societies are fully inside history and far distant from the stability or even from the harmony attributed to them in the name of a primacy of a unanimous group. The presence of history in every social machine plainly appears in the disharmonies that, as Levi Strauss says, bear the unmistakable stamp of time elapsed. It is true that there are several ways to interpret such disharmonies, ideally by the gap between the real institution and the assumed ideal model, morally by invoking a structural bond between law and transgression, physically as though it were a question of attrition that would cause the social machine to lose its capacity to wield its materials. But here too, it seems that the correct interpretation would be, above all, actual and functional. It is in order to function, that a social machine must not function well. 
This has been shown precisely with regard to the segmentary system, which is always destined to reconstitute itself on its own ruins, and likewise for the organization of the political function in these systems, which in effect is exercised only by indicating its own impotence. Ethnologists are constantly saying that kinship rules are neither applied nor applicable to real marriages, not because these rules are ideal, but rather because they determine critical points where the apparatus starts up again provided it is blocked, and where it necessarily places itself in a negative relation to the group. Here it becomes apparent that the social machine is identical with the desiring machine. The social machine's limit is not attrition, but rather its misfirings. It can only operate by fits and starts, grinding and breaking down in spasms of minor explosions. The dysfunctions are an essential element of its very ability to function, which is not the least important aspect of the system of cruelty. The death of a social machine has never been heralded by a disharmony or a dysfunction. On the contrary, social machines make a habit of feeding on the contradictions they give rise to, on the crises they provoke, on the anxieties they engender, and on the infernal operations they regenerate. Capitalism has learned this and ceased doubting itself, while even socialists have abandoned belief in the possibility of capitalism's natural death by attrition. No one has ever died from contradictions, and the more it breaks down, the more it schizophrenizes, the better it works. The American way. Well, first, I, I will it. say, first I want to say before anything, Ken, as the Jungian, like this was pointed at you like a fucking sniper rifle. I'd love if you had a second if you want to respond. <laughs> Can you tell me how it's pointed at you? Well, I mean, um, I mean, there's no archetypes as a thing, and that mocks them as a concept. That I, I think it. is. I, oh, I lost um, connection. Uh, the open first bit: uh, the idea that primitive societies have no history, that they are dominated by archetypes, and their repetition is weak and inadequate, is the first sentence. I, yeah. Um. I don't. <laughs> I, ju I just don't understand it. Um, <clears throat> so as I've come to understand it, uh, an archetype is just describing like, I don't know, uh, determinative chaos or something like that. Yeah, um, that's fair. That's fair. Here, let me, let me, let me try to say, that. let me try to say what I think their critique is. Cause I think it's a worthwhile discussion because it's, um, I think it's the point of this paragraph. Um, um, I know Young has not the entire market. Uh, so I'm uh, for those who aren't haven't been listening for literally like a year to every podcast we've done. Uh, continuous thing we do is give Ken a little bit of shit because uh, he knows a lot more about a lot of these things than we do. And so it's kind of like anytime Young or Lacan kind of gets brought out, uh, the the continuing joke I've been making has been, yeah. So uh, this stuff's stupid, Ken. Why don't you tell us why it's not? Is kind of the ongoing thing. And so that's the the joke they're I'm playing here. So. Uh, but uh, I think what they're saying here is um, that the idea of archetypes, and he's pointing fairly a bit at uh, at Jung and a few others, that uh, you say that prehistory, uh, these, these societies have no history, uh, and that they are a place of archetypes and their repetition of these archetypes. That is how they've developed as a society. It's how they have their myths. It's how they set up. But his argument in return is like, look, they have history. They have all of the elements of history. They have the presence of history as a thing. We have not assigned that because 
we have this uh, belief that society must be a functional whole. Uh, it must be a, a predictable game, I suppose I would say, after our reading yesterday with uh, Logic of Sense, this idea that uh, society has to work. And if the machine of society doesn't work, well, it's because it's not really about the machine of society. The machine of society is secondary. There's these other things that make it work. And their argument is flipping that almost completely on its head and saying, actually, the fact that the society doesn't work is why it works, which is kind of a, that's how I read this. And, and anyone feel free to disagree with me, but that's how I read this. And it's a, definitely a, a, an affront on the idea of, uh, you know, Jung's take and, I mean, even Freud's take for the hordes of uh, the idea that their prehistory, the only way that they have to carry on these stories and to say what they should be doing is by utilizing archetypes and mythology and stories. Um, I mean, his, his archetypes exist in history, but I don't know if I necessarily would From say history even. Yes. But that how, how history is organized with the people and how history is told in these places is with stories and archetypes that there is this idea of, as they say here, the, uh, invention of history is intended to be credited to Judeo Christian consciousness. But if what we call history is a dynamic and open social reality in a state of functional disequilibrium or an oscillating equilibrium, unstable and always compensated, comprised, blah, 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 blah. Like, they have history. Yeah. Can, I, can I cut in right there? Um, so Jung almost fully affirms Heraclitus's Fanta Ray in volume 14 um, and goes even further and says that there are some streams that... <laughs> that you almost can't even step into, but it's weird because it's like what you're stepping into is already the end. And then that's what gets repeated. <clears throat> Young was the first one to, uh, to really hint at the death drive too. And then Sabina Spearline got it from him. And then Freud sort of stole. Oh, did I lose connection? Nope. Nope. And then, uh, Freud sort of went off of that from, um, uh, to go into uh, beyond the pleasure principle, but um, but there's this misunderstanding that what's what the archetype is um, is an object of representation uh, can be fully conceptualized. You know, an archetype is not like an image of of the cross that you can find similarities through without history like the the archetype is not like some ideal it's not the beautiful and the good it is not like the ideal image of like a man or woman or something like this um he almost i mean he he observes a uh, a thing that he cannot explicate at all through history and then he tries to find the products of this thing. But what that thing is, he can't say exactly because it's a constantly moving, developing thing. And this was his point about – but he did believe he could uh, predict some things. Like uh, he, he predicted that, uh, that the Catholic Church would do the Ascension of Mary thing. Um, but I don't know if that was because of some – knowledge of archetypes as much as he could see what the catholic church was denying in their system That's fair. so i i honestly think it's just a fundamental uh misunderstanding of what the archetype is well so um, I, have, I have a question for you people are talking about most of the time people are talking about prototypes or stereotypes so 
but a, qu a question for you, um, because I've, I wondered this the last time. I didn't say it out loud. I have it in my notes. Uh, isn't Nomad, as the Luz uses in here, an archetype? I mean, how? You know, the, the archetype is just this, uh, like the best thing that I can come up with, the best modern day analogy is the strange attractor of chaos theory. It's just he's trying to put his finger on deterministic chaos. And this is explicated by like people like Van Uick and Hodginson and a few other peoples. Like he's talking about oscillations in, in this strange attractor space with these basins of attraction. Um, but it's not like what's repeating through time are representations or symbols. He says the symbol is always explicating something that we do not know. Like, he, like that, his, that is his like foundational, like one of his foundational disagreements with Freud is that um, not every oblong thing is a penis and not every hole is a vagina. He thinks that symbols and dreams are ultimately uh providing some sort of quality of mystery that way you can dig into them and develop something right. that's beyond what you know right well so then let me say uh, uh thank you for all that that's great um so maybe it's not directly at young i will say that i know well, people I mean, I, is, but... well, I mean it is um but it's it's definitely a, a it's against uh, maybe not directly you know young but an understanding of young that i know exists that the idea of Hercules yeah, sure. and the idea of no, archetypes as as this is how things existed before written history and before we started recording stuff was through storytelling. And the only way people remember that shit and how to behave was through the archetypical nature of Hercules or whatever fucking world you came from, a million yeah. different stories. And that we learned how to behave through that. And their argument is like, no, this is all still history. This is it's not because we don't have a written and cohesive world that it, we don't get history. The argument here, and I, and again, to get back to the paragraph, um, the argument here is like, look, things breaking is how it works. And here's why, and they outline it. And then they get to the end. And that's one thing I wanna really put out as a question, because I know there's people related to Deleuze who are accelerationists. We probably have some, I know we have some uh, on this. How does an accelerationist take their idea that pushing the contradictions of capitalism will lead to its destruction and that Deleuze believed that when literally the last two sentences of this paragraph exist as a thing. I really am just curious because I, I, it feels like this is a, yeah, accelerationism's bullshit. No one has ever died from contradictions feels like it's a direct comment on this idea of, oh, let's point out the contradictions in things and how things are broken. And that'll let's speed things up so the contradictions show up more and more and more. And it's like no one has ever died from it. The more it breaks down, the more it schizophrenizes. I think it's certainly uh, poking fun at Hegel. Oh, for sure. I don't know about accelerationism because that's I don't know that it was that popular at the time. Oh no, I'm not saying I'm not saying it's at uh, like it's for sure at the dial like the classic dialectic and the idea of yeah. contradiction and, and kind of classic Marxism. I'm more asking, like, throwing this now, what, uh, 50, 60 years in the future, uh, 40 years in the future, um, we look at this and we go, uh, hey, wait, the idea of accelerationism as a thing is that we continue to increase the contradictions of capitalism at an ever-increasing rate that causes it to break. 
literally here it says capitalism's lured this and ceases doubting itself well even socialists have abandoned belief in the ability of capitalism's natural death by attrition the more it breaks down the more it schizophrenizes it's the nature of the social machine it loves to schizophrenize and the better the more the better yeah i i think uh, people often uh specifically use it in the way you're saying right to say you know bills and guattari weren't accelerations it's a hell of a sentence. Um, mm. I mean, in a way, capitalism's been broken for ages. It breaks all the time. It doesn't actually make capital. It usually helps capitalism, though. Helps it quite a bit. Like, for instance, there was the, the thing with um, food uh, prices were going to get too low in Europe to where the, the food like market was going to crash, right? Because farmers weren't going to make enough money. So the European Union bought up hundreds of millions of tons of food and let it rot to make the price of food go up. Like, that's capitalism breaking. But what it actually did is just make made a bunch of bourgeois people even richer. Yeah. Definitely. And not only when capitalism is failing, but also when other systems are failing, like mm. uh, East Germany, the GDR, uh, it was... It, it made a lot of people in the West way richer when well, I mean, it collapsed the, the fall of the entire soviet union uh look at what happened with yeltsin and the entire thing there as well as the general neoliberal order alongside that like holy shit, the stories are incredible if you haven't like fully dug in it's really worth it yeah whole uh, almost whole cities here were bought up and and factories just uh took uh, uh taken from from the east and rebuilt in the west and stuff like that and then and now they are whining because oh the east is still not catching up with the west and all stuff like that but yeah uh something i was uh real quick real quick just real quick i wanted to go with nihilus's mm -hmm. question just really quick uh is contradiction oh, yeah. okay. in this in this case self-falsification um if you mean by self-falsification that the nature of things that over time it the society does a thing that obviously it shows that it's full of shit as it goes and it breaks uh yes i believe so uh the the idea that for example under capitalism uh here's an here's one uh hey uh boy we've got a lot of people and we really really are running out of ways to make profit from taxis boy is there a way i wish oh geez i guess capitalism's broken we can't find a way to make money off taxis anymore and oh you can't eh what if i disregarded all laws of employment <laughs> and i created uber and then now we have that system that now comes out of it that it loves the breaks. The breaks are where capitalism loves its shit, for sure. That's how I understand it, at least. Uh, I hope that makes sense. It, that's in the Hegelian sense. It's it's self falsification. Yeah, it's like we take there's the whole system or whatever. A contradiction emerges in the system, and then is dealt with or whatever. And what we end up with afterwards is supposed to be better, right? Um, better being in big big think, quotes. Yeah, which in this case you would think. Hmm, maybe it's capitalism that's get that gets better. Not uh other things, you know. But that's not how many of the Hegelians or accelerationists take it. Maybe maybe not better, but it finds other ways in in this respect. I mean it usually gets better at being exploitative, right? That's actually, that's the way. It's a good way to put it. Yeah, it, it learns how to. Mm. It 
it, it gets better at its job, which is being capital, basically. Yeah, and, and this is the strength of it, I would say, because it is uh, very reliable in, in when, when faced by this uh, dysfunctions. And I really like this in this paragraph, not, not only in relation to capitalism, because uh, um, I almost forgot this whole <laughs> section because uh, uh, I, I could really need this for a paper on, on really uh, this topic of disequilibrium and, and uh, noise within uh, media systems and stuff and that these are constitutive for uh, generating meaning and stuff like that also in relation to Michel Serres. But uh, it's, it's uh, way before he wrote his book on the parasite where he um, goes in, in depth and onto this, uh, into this whole notion of the excluded third uh, or the so-called parasite uh, and all the the noise and dysfunctions uh, that are so essential for the development of uh, our social systems, but also in uh, uh, political um, activities uh, within uh, information um, theory, within uh, cybernetic spheres, etc. And and this really fits very well because here uh, before that the Deleuze and Guattari described history as a dynamic and open social reality, a state of functional disequilibrium or an oscillating equilibrium. So we have here uh, this, this uh, almost like a motor for this, uh, a constant form of chaotic production uh, with which the, the social machines, uh, which are now uh, explicitly said to be identical or at least in function with desiring machines, are constantly uh, at the mercy of the outside world or of the body without organs uh, and um, out of which they they draw a lot of a lot of resources and it is uh, essential to develop in in this way by uh, being open to this dysfunctioning because when when you're not and you're just a, a very fixed uh, um, stable system uh, which is just um, concerned with its own stabilization and, and constant uh, just uh, reproducing its status quo uh, without any uh, change you just you just die i like that it's a good way to put it um, i'm going to continue to the next paragraph uh, to continue from uh, also the best line i'm just going to reread it and then continue and the more it breaks down the more it schizophrenizes the better it works the american way but this is already the point of view required, given a change of perspective, for examining the primitive socius, the territorial machine for declining alliances and filiations. This machine is segmentary because though it, its double apparatus of tribe and lineage, it cuts up segments of varying lengths, genealogical filiative units of major, minor, and minimal lineages, with their hierarchy, their respective chiefs, their elders who guard the stocks and organize the marriages, territorial tribal units of primary, secondary, and tertiary seconds, sections, also having their dominant roles and their alliances. The point of separation between the tribal sections becomes the point of divergence in the clan structure of the lineages associated with each section. For, as we have seen, clans and their lineages are not distinct corporate groups but are embodied in local communities, through which they function structurally. The two systems intersect, each segment being associated with the flows and the chains, with the stocked flows and the passing flows, with selections from the flows and detachments from the chains. 
Certain production projects are executed in the framework of the tribal system, others in the framework of a lineage system. The variability and relativity of the segments are responsible for all sorts of penetrations between the inalienable elements of filiation and the mobile elements of alliance. This is explained by the fact that the length of each segment, or even its existence as such, is determined only by its opposition to other segments in a series of interrelated stages. The segmentary machine mixes rivalries, conflicts, and ruptures throughout the variations of filiations and the fluctuations of alliance. The whole system evolves between two poles, that of fusion through opposition to other groups and that of scission through the constant formation of new lineages aspiring to independence, with capitalization of alliances and filiation. From one pole to the other, all the misfirings and failures in a system that is constantly reborn of its own disharmonies. What does Jean Favre mean when she shows, along with other ethnologists, that the persistence of a segmentary organization requires paradoxically that its mechanisms be ineffectual enough so that fear remains the motor of the whole? What is this fear? It would appear that social formations experienced a morbid and mournful foreboding of things to come, although what comes to them always comes from without, rushing in through the opening. Perhaps it is even for this reason that it arrives from without. They suffocate its inner potentiality at the cost of the dysfunctions that constitute an integral part of the functioning of their system. It's a, my short version, it is a summary up till this point of all that we've talked about, talking about how the two systems intersect, how they play, how uh, the economy of this works within the people and across the people and how it deals with them and how within it everything is intermixed, rivalries and all of that, that the dangers really can't come from within. It's not really possible because of the way debt is structured and striated across everything. Um, the persistence of a segmentary organization requires that its mechanisms be ineffectual enough so that fear remains the mortar of the whole. It's a hell of a statement and really nice, actually, as a, again, thinking about what that motor is, what's driving it, uh, and how the segmentary organization works within it. If uh, no one has a note, I'm going to finish up the chapter. Um, and then we can discuss as necessary any questions that are left because there will be nothing after that except for the next section. Um, the segmentary territorial machine makes use of scission to exercise fusion and impedes the concentration of power by maintaining the organs of chieftainry in a relationship of impotence with the group. As though the savages themselves sensed the rise of the imperial barbarian, who will come nonetheless from without and will overcode all their codes. But the greatest danger would be yet another dispersion, a scission such that all the possibilities of coding would be suppressed. Decoded flows, flowing on a blind, mute, deterritorialized socius. Such is the nightmare for the, that the primitive social machine exorcises with all its forces and all its segmentary articulations. The primitive machine is not ignorant of exchange, commerce, and industry. It exercises them, localizes them, cordons them off, encasts them, and maintains the merchant and the blacksmith in a subordinate position, so that the flows of exchange and the flows of production do not manage to break the codes in favor of their abstract or fictional quantities. 
And isn't that also what Oedipus, the fear of indecest, is about? The fear of a decoded flow? If capitalism is the universal truth, it is so in the sense that that makes capitalism the negative of all social formations. It is the thing, the unnameable, the generalized decoding of flows that reveals a contrario, the secret of all these formations, coding the flows, and even overcoding them, rather than letting anything escape coding. Primitive societies are not outside history, rather it is capitalism that is at the end of history. It is capitalism that results from a long history of contingencies and accidents, and that brings on this end. It cannot be said that the previous formations did not foresee this thing that only came from without by rising from within, and that at all costs had to be prevented from rising. Whence the possibility of a retrospective reading of all history in terms of capitalism? It is already possible to see signs of classes in pre-capitalist societies, but ethnologists observe how difficult it is to distinguish those proto-classes from the castes organized by the imperial machine and from the rankings distributed by the segmentary primitive machine. The criteria that distinguishes classes, castes, and ranks must not be sought in a fixity or a permeability, nor in a relative closing or opening. These criteria always reveal themselves to be deceptive, imminently misleading. But the ranks are inseparable from the primitive territorial coding process, just as castes are inseparable from the overcoding practiced by the imperial state, while classes are relative to the process of an industrial and commodity production decoded under the conditions of capitalism. All history can therefore be read under the sign of classes, but by observing the rules set forth by Marx and bearing in mind that classes are the negative of castes and ranks. For it is certain that the regime of decoding does not signify the absence of organization, but rather the most somber organization, the harshest compatibility, with the axiomatic replacing the codes and incorporating them always a contrario. Um, I'll just ask, uh, what questions are there? I, 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 I don't want to dive right in. I think we've got uh, 10 minutes or so. Uh, I'll make sure we stick around and we do this. Um, I would love to hear questions or comments or anything on uh, this entire section, if anything is sitting there, because it's, uh, again, pretty foundational, I'd say. So, like all of it is, but this one's really solid. I really dig that. Triad, any more thoughts now that you finish it off? Yeah, uh, I like it now even more, uh, because I guess I forgot most of it. Um, Especially that uh, decision here is mentioned as this way of of um, introducing some sort of dysfunctioning or disjunctive uh, connections then later, and that there is this looming threat of capitalism um, with this almost infinite potential for decisions that is uh, just cutting up everything and then reassembling it to be compatible with it. So there is at one point no contrast anymore and everything becomes engulfed by it. At least that's how I read it in a very uh, superficial sense now. And it's quite bleak, I would say, especially uh, in the end of this paragraph. I love it as well. 
Uh, Jean-Claire asks, uh, can you talk about this? And isn't that also what Oedipus, the fear of incest, is about? The fear of a decoded flow? Um, so, all right. The, the primitive socialists, as we talked about, and I'll just restate the previous sentence from there. Uh, the primitive social machine exercises. Uh, it is not ignorant of exchange, commerce, and industry. It, it knows these things are possible. Like the, the socialist is aware of, it's almost like it's aware of other things that are happening. He's, it's, he's speaking poetically for the most part, but like the way that society is organized here, there is an awareness that a person could, in theory, go, hey, I found this really pretty gym. I'll trade you that really pretty gym for the woman, and then uh, you know we can forget about alliance thing, and then I've given you the gym, and we're good. Like this, this is a thing that exists as a possibility. Um, it's a hell of a coding too, and it would completely fuck up that entire <laughs> that entire group. And so the socius is aware of this, and so uh, it's it's really important that it actually excoriates them, it cordons them off, and casts these parts, and maintains the merchant and blacksmith in a subordinate position. So the flows of exchange, a blacksmith who makes things, the merchant who sells things, all of that, uh, of flows don't break codes in favor of abstract or fish, fictional qualities. Uh, uh, the nature of all of this uh, inside of these spaces is that when I build something, I, I'm making an axe, the, the fictional qualities of who's making it, how it's being made, maybe even like how pretty it is and things like that. Uh, the, Abstract or fictional qualities. The, we don't want to break these codes. And Oedipus, and in a similar way, uh, is about the fear of the decoded flow, the flow of, uh, if in this case, I think filiation is, I think, the one they're referring to. Um, and it shattering that and the fear of what that might come from and what might result from that. Is, uh, that. Uh, Ojat answers with a quote. Uh, if capitalism is the universal truth it is so in the sense that makes capitalism the negative of social formations oh, i love this part it is the thing the enable the generalized coding of flows that reveals a contrario the secret of all those formations a contrary meaning in opposition uh, uh, as uh, opposing it uh, if you look at the opposite a contrario the secret of all these formations coding the flows and even overcoding them rather than let anything escape coding Primitive societies are not outside history. Rather, capitalism is the end of history. It is capitalism that results from a long history of contingencies and accidents and that brings on this end. That's a, the thing it's terrified of is capital hyper-decoding flows. There's a thing waiting. I think. I think. I actually think their line there, and I love, you bring up Fukuyama Adib. I actually think they would agree with him, but I think they agree with him in like a fun inverted way where... The only option now, after cap capitalism being the end of history, it doesn't mean there's nothing afterwards. It means now history is done. <laughs> like this, this, like we're done with it. The next step is permanent revolution, where history doesn't exist as a thing. So yes, the capital is where history stops. There's just other shit that comes in a different format. I think is how they would probably respond, and they'd probably be a little snarky with it. That's just maybe my joke. I I, I tend to think that's how they look at it. Um, I think they'd laugh at Fukuyama, though, that's for sure. Uh, any any other comments or questions uh, of anything? Because uh, we are finishing up. All right, well, uh, as always, I thank all of you um, very, very much 
for joining us and being part of this discussion. Uh, I hope, uh, as always, I hope my interpretation of the things I said uh, at least spurns you into a good direction. Do not listen to what I'm saying directly. My job here, as far as I see it, is to just cause you to start having good conversations about this and to seek out other texts and be able to grasp them a little bit better because that's my journey on this server. So I thank you very, very, very much for being part of my journey. And as always, uh, please uh, look us up on all kinds of social media. If you like what we're doing, hit us up on Patreon. Uh, we are at DGQC on Patreon, D and GQC on Twitter. We don't really do much else except for YouTube, which is uh, Quarantine Collective underscore uh, YT on YouTube. And uh, as always, thank all of you very much. It's uh, just a fucking treat every time. Every time. Thank you so much. Thank you.